Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist for the Financial Times, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are making the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my columns. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. This week's edition comes from Berlin, recorded in the month that marks the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. To get an insight into how modern Germans think about their place in the world, I visited the presidential palace in central Berlin and spoke to Thomas Bagger, who is President Steinmeier's chief foreign policy advisor. Despite his official position, Ambassador Bagger is given unusual license to speak and write publicly about how Germans see the world, and he can be strikingly frank. And then comes a president who says, there is no such thing as an international community. There are only nations out there competing for influence and, and, uh, and for their own interests. That actually comes as a pretty much as a complete reversal of what German foreign policy has been built upon and a complete reversal of what this Germany was as a product of an enlightened American foreign policy that had taken a very different approach over 70 years. Those views were expressed in greater deal by Thomas in a recent journal article for the Washington Quarterly about German foreign policy since the fall of the Berlin Wall. But before getting into that discussion, I started by asking him what he was doing on the day that the wall fell in 1989. Well, I was in a computer lab on the campus of the University of Maryland at College Park in the United States, where I was working on my master's degree. And since we all didn't have our own computers or laptops, we were spending a lot of the evenings in this computer lab writing our papers. And I remember American friends rushing into the lab and saying, Thomas, they're taking the wall down, they're taking the wall down. And I was thinking, you know, these crazy Americans, they must have gotten something wrong because which wall are they talking about? They couldn't possibly talk about this wall, right? Because that was clearly unimaginable. How old were you at the time? And I was 24 in my fourth year as a student of international politics, international relations. And it always serves as a reminder for me for a sense of humility, because that was exactly what I studied. But I did not only not see it coming, I couldn't even imagine it when people told me it was happening. So I remember we went home in the evening and turned on the television set and there it was. But I I couldn't believe it. Yeah. But you in your article set out quite interestingly how quite quickly it settled into a 
sort of German version of the end of history thesis, that a sort of linear view of how history was going to progress that was quite comforting for Germany. As you said, for the first time, you felt like they were on the right side of history. Yeah, I I think that's something that struck me, but it was a slow realization over these past few years. I had a conversation in India with an Indian think tanker three years ago who told me, if only you Germans would not make 1989 the pivotal point of everything, you would not have that much trouble adapting to the world of today. And I remember that I pushed back in that conversation and that later on the flight back, I said, and what if he has a point? What if... This was a very happy experience for Germany, for all of Europe in that year. But actually, it's not as universal as we like to think of it. And then there was a second conversation I had in South Korea when we were there with the president for the opening of the Winter Olympics in early 2018. And we had all these discussions with South Koreans on reunification their perspective and our experience. And I could perfectly understand how they were interested in our experience and we were all too happy to tell how we got there. And then it struck me that in the end, there were others who had studied this, the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, but all in order to make sure that it never again happens the same way it happened in 1989. And that is when it dawned on me that this was the most nonlinear event of my adult life. But it's striking how we've derived this thoroughly linear expectation from such a non-linear By, by which you event. mean the linear expectation being that the whole world was going to move towards democracy and markets in the same way that Germany had done. Right. It's this expectation, what I'll call the expectation of grand convergence. Over time now, everybody would become like us. And Ivan Krastev, the Bulgarian intellectual, recently said the end of history was an American idea, but it was a German reality. Why it was particularly popular in Germany. There are certain elements. And I think the first one you've mentioned, it is this notion that after having been on the wrong side twice in the last century of First and Second World War and the Nazi uh, catastrophe, this was clearly an instance where at least the West Germans felt they were on the right side of history. And that felt very good. But I think there are two other elements that are interesting in that respect. This notion that military power would not matter that much in the future and that the future really belonged to the trading state, that this was not just a consequence of World War II, but it was actually the future and that others would have to come around and follow us in that direction. So suddenly we were not the exception, but we were the avant-garde of a more and more global trend. But the other I think specifically German element is this notion that if there are larger forces at work, structural forces that move history in the direction of democracy and market economy, this was very a very comforting thought for a country that had been as badly burned by a charismatic leader. This idea that personal agency actually matters less in the world post-89, and that those who govern us and all others are basically there to administer the inevitable, but not really to influence or change the course of history, it was far more comforting, I think, to the Germans than it, it would have mattered to people in France or Britain or in the United States or elsewhere in China or India. And so I think there are a number of of elements that explain why this notion of 
everyone will become like us, but we have already arrived at the destination of history, uh, was so particularly promising and and appealing to to many Germans. And why we have so many difficulties now adapting to a world that is obviously turning in a different direction. Yeah, and what's made you or the Germans conclude that the world is turning in a different direction? I mean, I don't dispute it, but whether what specific events have uh, reframed things? I mean, it's not that there was a singular crossing of a red line. I think it's, you know, in a way, as with sovereign debt, you only know you cross the line once you... Once you realize that there is no going back. Um, so with hindsight, I mean, you could, of course, say the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009 and the consequences, because that really shattered global trust into the Western model that the West really knew what it was doing. Uh, and it became apparent uh, we didn't. But I think for the Germans, the moment that really turned perceptions was Early 2014, it was uh, uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea and then the war in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass and, and the return of, um, of military force to the European continent. And I think in a way, when they say, oh, you've, you've only been following American orders on post-Crimea sanctions and post-Donbas sanctions, I think they thoroughly underestimate the degree to which the changing borders in Europe by military force came as a genuine shock to the German public, but especially to the German policymakers and political class as a whole. And are they feeling less shocked by that now? I mean, we're now five years on. Chancellor Merkel played, I'd say, in Europe, the leading role in trying to sort things out? Or has it left a, a lasting mark or some kind of mix of the two, I guess? I don't think the shock is, is less than it was. And you're right that it gave rise to a rather unique diplomatic exposure of Germany, really taking the lead in a diplomatic struggle and negotiation of global importance um, in the Minsk negotiations and with that Normandy process where Germany and France sit together with the Ukrainians and, and the Russians to try to diffuse the tension and, and move towards a, a peaceful solution of the conflict in Donbass. But I think whereas in 2014-15, we mostly had a debate about the unexpected but largely external pressure on liberal democracy coming from a rising China, coming from a Russia that mostly defined its future now suddenly in opposition to the West and no longer in cooperation with the West. What happened in 2016 with the Brexit referendum in June and then the election of, um, of a new American president in November um, made clear that the challenge was no longer only about external pressure or great power rivalry. It was really a challenge also of liberal democracy from within. All the challenges of a polarized society, of the rise of a more nationalist perspective on the way we run our own societies, but also how we look at the world uh, out there. And you said... Um that Brexit came as uh, a very profound shock to Germany, which is interesting because viewed from London, we seem to be like in a mess. The Germans seem very organised and to be dealing with it 
with a sort of sigh, but quite um, efficiently. But your argument in, in the Washington Quarterly article is that it, it's, again, undermined a kind of view of how the world was going to evolve. Yeah, I mean, specifically, when I think about June 23, 2016, I was working in the policy planning staff of the German foreign ministry for a foreign minister, who's now the president I work for, who was actually very sceptical of a positive outcome of the referendum. And so he tasked us to work together with the French on a contingency. So it's not that the the vote itself was completely unsuspected, but it was rather that, as for so many people around the globe, I think the British, for us, have always epitomized the strength of common sense. And that is what seemed to evaporate in already in the run-up to the referendum itself, but then also in, in a lot of what we've seen since. So it was the unraveling both of a political discourse and of a political system that was seriously worrying. And also the, the question about European integration as this linear view that the EU would only get stronger, progress in one direction, you know, and suddenly here's a major member leaving. Well, absolutely. I remember when I was a young civil servant uh, and joined the foreign ministry in 1992, and I was starting to work in the European division at the time, we were naturally writing in our briefing papers about the irreversible process of European unification. For us, there was no real distinction between the analytical and the normative nature of writing that. It was taken as a given, and that clearly is no longer the case, and Brexit is the most obvious example of that, because it's the first time, really, the European Union is losing a member. And then a few months later, you have the election of Donald Trump, and you wrote again in the Washington Quarterly that Trump's election pulls the rug from under the feet of German foreign policy thinking. Why was that? I think it is, again, because there are certain specifics to how Germany looks at its own role in world affairs. And um, if you simplify the basic lessons of the, of the Nazi era, it is the never again, mostly referring to the catastrophe of the Holocaust and, and so everything that flows from that Article 1 of the German Constitution uh, that puts the dignity of the individual at the centre of all actions of the German state. But secondly, it is the principle of never alone. Sort of look what the others want, look where the train is going, and then make sure we don't miss it. The worst thing would have been for Germany to stand alone on the international scene, whether in the European Union or the United Nations or anywhere else. So... There is a strong sort of multilateral imperative built into the DNA of post-war German foreign policy. That's why we, before we deploy troops abroad, we like to have a mandate of the UN Security Council, essentially because as post-war Germany, we don't trust our own judgment on that, uh, contrary to the Americans, for example, but also other Europeans. This is really at the core of German foreign policy. And then comes a president who says, there is no such thing as an international community. There are only nations out there competing for influence and, and, uh, and for their own interests. That actually comes as a, pretty much as a complete reversal 
of what German foreign policy has been built upon and a complete reversal of what this Germany was as a product of an enlightened American foreign policy that had taken a very different approach over 70 years. So Trump's been there for three years now. I mean, obviously, you're in the heart of the policymaking process and the diplomatic process, but you're also an observer. Um, do you see German foreign policy thinking now beginning to assimilate the shock of Trump and Brexit and change in any way? Or are you still basically trying to keep the old order going? Well, I, I think, honestly, I mean, first of all, I'm not really part of the policymaking process in this uh, office of a non-executive president. But, um, but I think you see both in the German debate. You, you have those who argue that things will not return to a status quo until the good old times are gone um, and they weren't always good anyway. So we better adapt now and we better get our own act together, get our European house in order, take some fundamental decisions to strengthen Europe. It's the whole debate about European sovereignty or strategic autonomy. And then on the other side of that debate, you have those that argue, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yes, there is damage. Yes, there are different approaches from the US. There is strain in the alliance. But... There's still a lot of the transatlantic infrastructure still standing, uh, both in terms of institutions and of support in the system of the U.S. government um, and in the U.S. capital and across the country. So it should be more adaptive. Clearly, we need to do more as Europeans, but, um, but it would not be in our interest to speed up a rupture. Mm. And do you see some of that? I was thinking in the... German reaction to Macron's comments where he talked about NATO as brain dead, where you have quite a lot of pushback, but also I sense some interest and some sense, well, maybe he's onto something. So you get this bifurcated reaction that you, you mentioned. Yeah, I agree. But it's, it's also because even if you agree with him analytically with most of what he says, as a German in this central position at the heart of Europe, you have to have a perspective on the cohesion of the EU27. And it's quite clear that, especially in Central Eastern Europe and the Baltic states, countries have a somewhat different perspective and are much more inclined to side with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who was in Berlin over the weekend of November 9, and saying the European Union cannot defend Europe. And if you really want to take Europe forward, including on security and defense issues, you cannot simply ignore those concerns in capitals like Warsaw or in the Baltic states. But you're more focused on strengthening the European pillar of NATO rather than um, dismissing NATO as a whole. And I think that really informs most of the political response you've heard to Macron's uh, uh, interview from official Berlin. Mm. And, I mean, we're talking very much as if sitting in Berlin, watching a world kind of going a bit crazy, but Germany remains a kind of island of stability, sanity, etc. But obviously it's a bit more complicated than that. And, and you wrote in your piece that political polarisation in Germany itself is palpable and that the centre ground of politics is shrinking. I mean, this country has had very centrist politics 
after unification. And it's for a reason that we have the third so-called grand coalition now over these last 30 years. But it's not true that politics has always been that centrist. That was not true in in the old West Germany that I grew up in, uh, in, the, in the days of the peace movement or NATO's double-track decisions in the early 80s when it was very polarized. And I think we're moving into another period of certainly more polarized German politics, uh, mostly but not entirely due to a debate of, around also immigration, refugees and migration. But I think the other, the other observation that you're alluding to, this country has had a surprisingly good run, not just in terms of political stability, but also in terms of economic performance as a clearly a winner of globalization over the past decade and a half. And if you're so successful, there's always a risk that you become the victim of your own success. Because you like to think that, well, haven't we done most of the things right over these past decades? So isn't it rather the other Europeans who need to adapt to the way we did things, rather than more or less radically changing some of the approaches we would have to take. Mm. And when you attempt to draw conclusions, though, it seems to me that you do come back to the EU again, despite acknowledging that maybe it hasn't been as a problem-free of process, that's to put it mildly, what if you think of the euro crisis, Brexit, etc., as as anticipated in 89, but it's, it's still the strongest sort of indispensable for any German vision of the world. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think in the end, it is what's left in terms of the rug under the feet of German foreign policy, and not just foreign policy, but, but much more than that, economics as well. But um, no, I, I sincerely believe that both what happens around Europe in the great power competition that we see, but also the unrest in the Middle East, uh, developments in Africa, all of that points German politics into the direction of investing more into a real process of convergence across the European Union, because that is the only way to, to make that integration process sustainable. That has never been easy because other countries have other perspectives, uh, other traditions, other other expectations of what should come out of this European integration project. But given that it is really the only successful answer that we have ever come up with to the German question of sort of a country at the heart of Europe that is uh, too big to be just one among many, but not big enough to dominate, then uh, I, I think it is not just in our own interest, it's really in the interest of the entire continent that we, we, we pursue this European in- integration project. Yeah. And finally, coming back to 1989, it's, a, it's an interesting anniversary, I think, because so many people now who are in positions of responsibility, such as yourself, it was kind of their formative political experience. They were Uh, in their mid-twenties, as as I was uh, at the time. You know, it was a moment of euphoria. Do you think it's fair to say that now, 30 years on, that euphoria has been replaced partly by a sense of foreboding? It's interesting in the commemorations that we have had here with the president in in Berlin. We had and he had invited his colleagues, the presidents from Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary. And because 
without what happened in their societies and their countries, the 9th of November would have hardly happened the way it did happen. And then you you share the stories and, and the memories of those days. Um, and these presidents are from different generations, sort of from their early 40s to their 70s. And I think I come away with the sense of, no, the joy was absolutely justified. And there is an enduring lesson in 1989, which is that even the unthinkable can happen. That's all for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Rachmanreview. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 